Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Monday morning. I'm just back from uh, an exhausting trip to Vancouver, the other side of the continent. So I'm a little wiped out. Had a very nice uh, reception there, Rabbi Rosenblatt and the others were very gracious hosts. So I'll talk about that later, perhaps. But I'm rushing now to fulfill an obligation. I see that the Radomskis, who are among my favorite people in Israel that I've never met in the Gush, uh, are uh, sponsoring today because it's the grandfather's yard site on Chavtes uh, Marcheshman. I believe that's today, isn't it? And um, the sixth yard site, this is for Alexander Mordechai Benaria Yehuda. Again, Alexander Mordechai Benaria Yehuda. And also, obviously, as they say, for the safe return of all the hostages and for Tzahal. Uh, obviously, remember the Radomskis live Mamash in Eretz Yisrael, and everybody else is uh, is obviously uh, supporting them. A lot of people are fasting today in the U.S. and elsewhere. And um, Yom Kippur Cotton services are being held in my show also. And we are, tomorrow's the big rally in Washington. So it's such a moment. <clears throat> it's such a moment. In that context... I'll tell you the truth, I just came back, and I'm rushing to do this. I'm, I'm throwing my mind into the Parshas Toldos. And uh, as is uh, normal in the last couple of weeks, you can't help but view the Parsha of the Week in terms of the Parsha of the Week. The Parsha of the Week is the war going on in Israel, right? This whole episode. And, uh, and you think about... The fact that you're dealing with Yaakov and Esav, obviously, that's the point of this uh, parsha, and uh, and then we think we're in, we're in a battle with Yishmael, and it kind of brings out, or at least to me, the distinctive differences between the challenges of Esav on the one hand and the challenges of of uh, Yishmael on the other, and how things have turned out. For example, at the moment, nobody knows the future. At the moment, uh. The state of Israel being supported by a uh, by Esau, as being opposed by Yishmael. It's not always like that in history, but that's the, the reason we see us. When you see all these people marching, all these Amaleks and others in uh, America and around the world and all this, it's mostly Yishmael marching with some uh, fellow travelers. You understand? Uh, you don't have this in places where there isn't a lot of Yishmael. Uh, people can be right-wingers, left-wingers, this, that, and the other. It's hard for a regular person to swallow what Hamas did. But the Amalek marchers are doing that right now in London and New York and elsewhere, as we know. They are basically saying, you know, look at the evils that Israel's doing in killing civilians. But would our people kill civilians? That was okay. So that's the Ishmael point of view. It's not an Esau point of view. It's just interesting to me. If they have Esau people joining the ranks, or uh, uh, Yehudim joining the ranks. I mean, these are, like I said before, these are uh, either uh, Yisrael idiots or Rachav Azonas or, uh, or, well, whatever. I don't want to go into that. Now, I mention it because in this week's Parsha, 
we have the uh, the second of the two um, controversies, or so to speak, that seem to be in, uh, in Jewish thought, in rabbinic thought. Let's put it that way: in rabbinic thought. Uh, there's no way to confirm this historically. In rabbinic thought, is identified as I say before with the challenge of Yishmael on the one hand and the base on the other. It's not a challenge from China, and not a challenge from India, not a challenge from Africa. It's very distinctive that it's Yishmael and Esau. And what indeed we see, looking back after a couple thousand years, is these are not Stamazoi, you know, Dvar Torahs. Yishmael and Esau have assumed humongous proportions, gigantic proportions in in the world. Uh, Culturally speaking, China, although they outnumber the others, doesn't have that kind of hushball around the world. Same thing with India. There are plenty of people from India, plenty of people from Africa. But in terms of culture, ideas, values, it's Esav and Yishmol. And and behind them, you know, uh, Yaakov. <laughs> behind them, Yaakov. In other words, the Jewish religion, but mainly the Christian religion and the Muslim religion, have become gigantic world religions. So there aren't too many Englishmen who are believers in the Chinese gods, right? There aren't too many Frenchmen who are believers in the gods of India, of which there are plenty. On the other hand, there's plenty of Chinese and Asians and Africans and others and, and Americans and South Americans and, and Aborigines and you name it, who are Christians or Muslims. There are historical reasons for that. But in those, the stories of Bracious resonate with people around the world in a way that hasn't been true of other cultures. That's just interesting, okay? So the Bible and the Quran are probably the two number one books out there in terms of sales. And they have distinctive uh, features, as we know. Again, this screams at us, in my opinion, today, because we're in a war with Yishmael, with the worst elements of Yishmael, let's put it that way. And by the way, what is the worst element of Yishmael? When you have a combination of the worst of Yishmael plus the combination... Married to combination of the worst of of Aesop, which is Amalek, correct? Because Amalek is a, it, it, by descent, by by birth, was from uh, you know Aesop and, and, and Yishmol, correct? You know from Eliphaz and all the rest of it. So that's a that's a, that's a uh, toxic potion, potion, right? So consider, and these true. In our parsha, I'm asking you the question: What's the difference between Yitzhak and Yishmael on the one hand, and Yaakov and Esau on the other? And the answer, of course, is Yitzhak and Yishmael were not twins; they had different mothers. It's not even like they were from the same mother, but one was older than the other, right? The Yishmael is from Hagar, and Yitzhak is from um, Sarah. We know this, so they are related. But in a, from day one in an antagonistic fashion. The reason I mention it is because whenever you have polygamy, it's almost calculated to create uh, tensions and enmity between the children of different wives. Isaiah Gatos. The world history is full of that. And so is biblical history, by the way. Which is why, in my opinion, no one in Jewish history... Um, sought to have polygamy until maybe David Melch or something like that. That's, that's, I, I just made quite a statement. Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov did not want to have polygamy. 
Am I right or am I wrong? Avram didn't take a hugger until he was like 100 years old or something like that at Sarah's urging. So they were married for decades and decades. And they were still childless. And he never wanted anybody else, which is quite a statement. Okay? Quite a statement. He could have said to Sarah, listen, I love you dearly, but on the other hand, I want to have children. And so I'm going to have a second wife for this reason and that reason, you know, whatever. He did not do that. Right? He saw this as it wouldn't be right to Sarah. That's it's a quite a love story, okay? It's only later, you know, that Sarah said, and so forth. And it turned out Taka, a classic example, where she has a child and he has a child. And Goresh has been on Mazos, Kilovi Rash Bani, has been on Mazos in Bani Yitzchak. A classic polygamy case, which Avram was not looking for. And uh, and later in life, he marries Keturah. That's in other words, all of his other wives were, were gone by then. So he was at the second wife, which is a completely different story, okay? And he was very aware of the problem I just mentioned you. Very aware of that. And that's why, you know, he sent him all the way to somewhere else. He gave him presents and sent him away. Didn't want to mess it up. So, and by the way, Yitzchak also didn't want to have another wife. That's actually, I've spoken about this in the past, I'm sure I have. That's actually the most romantic part of Pasha's Toldos, where um, the Medrash says that Yitzhak said, I'm, I refuse to marry anybody else, and then if I'm, if I'm destined to have a child, it's going to be from her. Right? Look at the Vayetar Yitzhak Lenocha Chisto. Is Rashi telling it's in the Medrash Rabbah? No, Rashi just said, Here, but it's there. But you look in, you look in the Medrash Rabbah, um, and you'll see, you know, I have. Hmm. See, I happen to be looking, at, having in front of me the the Torah Tamima, because I got that new set with the Nakudas. But he he often misses the good ones. I have to say that. If you look in the Medrashaba, you'll see any children I have is uh, In other words, he refused under any circumstances to take a concubine, and obviously one of the reasons he did it was because he was attached to Rifka. They they were really uh, a more how should I put it emotionally romantic relationship than you would ordinarily think. La Fuka didn't see, and second of all, he didn't want to do it. Yaakov Avinu also wasn't interested in polygamy. If Lovin didn't screw him over, Yaakov would just marry Rachel, and that'd be the end of it. They met, they fell in love, they wanted to get married right then and there. Unfortunately, they ran into the father-in-law. So, we know that this is what they wanted. Okay? Now, in the case of our Pasha, is twins. So that's a different kind of thing. It's the same mother. Okay? So you don't have that kind of competition. On the other hand, you have two twins, and the question is, who's getting the Yerusha. Now, ordinarily, how should I put it? In some cultures, they used to have primogeniture, in which the like in European societies, the oldest son got all the land, and the other sons among the nobles, and the other sons had to fend for themselves. It's a famous feature of European aristocratic culture, right? That the estate, in order not to be broken up, went to the oldest, and the other kids, you know. One went into the government, one went into the army, one went into the church. Azoi. 
one was a wastrel, that's extremely typical of the aristocracy in these countries. They had that system because they wanted to keep the whole estate, you know, as one big blob. So that's a winner take all. Notice there's four or five brothers and one's going to get it. Think, for example, the royal family in Britain. One's going to get the crown and the others aren't. That's how it goes. Right? So in our parsha, that role is assumed by the bracha of Yitzhak. Meaning, ordinarily, who cares who was born first? It's, it's Yitzhak, I mean, it's Yaakov and Esau. Yodo Achaz is Bakesa. I'm like, who cares? Who's going to have Pishnaim? Listen, Yitzhak was loaded, and Yaakov and Esau turned out in life to be able to make their own money. They're millionaires on their own. So who cares if we get Pishnaim? You know what I'm saying? <clears throat> no, let's say, I'm just making this up. Let's say he left him a, a, an estate of uh, $50 million. Okay, that's a lot of money where I come from. So you're going to divide between the two of them. One's going to pp schneim. So you break it into three parts, right? So what does it come to? Approximately 16 million is a third or something like that, a little more. So this one gets 32 million. The other one gets 16 million. 16 million is guns fine. You know, at least where I come from. So it wouldn't have been a war over that. But there was this business of the bracha, which only one can get and the other can't get. And that leaves the the loser high and dry. Either Yaakov's going to get the bracha of Yitzhak, or else Esav is. It's always hard to understand what exactly is going on with the bracha. No one's ever really defined it to my satisfaction. The reason I say this is because Jerban Shalom had whatever plans he has. We would like to think that it was by Yaakov, not Esav. Jerban Shalom can organize matters in such a way that Yaakov, even without the bracha, because of its sidkus, would create, would have 10 shvatim and all that kind of thing, 12 shvatim, and would create an am kadosh of some sort, and they would be the ones who get the Torah. So what do I care if Esau gets the bracha, you know, of mishmani arts and all the rest of it? You know, like, ask yourself the question, what does it matter that much? But on the other hand, it's like a Hasidic Shavuot. The bracha has a tremendous power. And obviously, Yaakov and Rivka were worried about it and wanted it in the worst way. And so they ended up resorting to subterfuges. We know the whole story. So it's because there was this bracha that only one can get and the other can't. And not getting it seemed to be such a terrible thing. Even I'll say it again. If Yaakov is Ishtam Yoshev Oholim, Let's put it this way, by the yeshivish world. Who cares about the bracha? You sit and learn, which Yaakov was doing anyway. And, you know, and a bunch of them take care of all around the world. And if you're meant to be a great person, you'll be a great person. What's with the magical element of the bracha of Yitzhak, you know? It's, it's, we always take it for granted because we hear it ever since we're kids. It doesn't exactly make so much sense, at least not to me. A person is judged or supposed to be judged by who they are. And what they do. There'd be no question that Esau would turn out to be Esau, even if he had the bracha. Notice he would squander it. Do you get it? Or, and if Yaakov would be a tzaddik, he'd be a tzaddik, and he would earn it. But obviously I'm wrong, <laughs> right? Because you see that the, the Torah, the Chumash, makes such a big deal about who gets the bracha, and it kind of almost justifies 
Yaakov's uh, trickery. So he's saying, listen, he had to get the bracha. You know, he, I mean, he had to do whatever it takes to get the bracha. It's a strange story, as we all know. I spoke about it in the past, and so have you. So, because there's this element of the bracha that nobody else can get, only one can get, that creates all the tension. However, there's a difference between in relationship between two twins on the one hand and two children from different mothers in a polygamous situation on the other hand. And that's talk of the way history develops. That's the interesting point. Looking back from the perspective of many centuries now, thousands of years, so you see that there's a difference between the relationship of the Judaism on the one hand to Christianity, which we associate with Aesop in some you know, general fashion, Edom, has always been associated with the West, and on the other hand, with Yishmael. And you see this, you get what I'm saying? One is two twins competing with each other, and the other ones are two brothers, much more distant, and compete each other in a different way. In a different way. Because by the time the story's over, Ace, think about what I'm about to say. Asaph has to acknowledge that Yaakov got the bracha. He hates him for it. He says he's a cheater. He has tinnitus on him. But he said, you stole the bracha, meaning you got the bracha. I wanted it, but you got it. I'm angry about it, but I acknowledge you got it because, because they were sitting there. You know, Yitzchak had just given it out. As we all know, Esau said, give me a shtickel bracha, a bracha achas, barcheni gamoniavi. He knows that Yaakov got the bracha. And the relationship between, throughout history, between the Christians and one and the Jews and the other is, is a kind of a relationship like that, it seems to me. Christianity's always had a problem saying that, you know, the Jews are like a chosen people. We we, we don't like it. We don't understand it. It's a certain cheating. It's not proper, but it's emis. Right? The official position of the Catholic Church today, as I understand, ever since 1960s, the Roman Catholic Church, mind you, is that, you know, there's uh, the Christians who are saved because they believe in Yashka. There's the others who are not, and they're not saved. And then there's the Jews who are in a special madrega of their own because they're God-chosen people. That's the official position of the Catholic Church. There are some right-wing Catholics that don't like the fact that the Catholic Church is in that way. But so far, and, they, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, they're working at this moment as I speak to undo that, but they haven't. So, and that's true, as you know, of, um, how should I put it, you know, the Jerry Falwell types, the the, um, the Mike Huckabees, who'll say, or like these cowboys you read the other day, I mean, I just saw it out of the side of my eyes, that there these uh, uh, cowboys who are going to help Israel out from uh, somewhere in the, in, in the far west, right? With the 10-gallon hats. What they're saying is like this, you know, we are B'nai Esau, but we acknowledge that, you know, that Yaakov got the bracha. Didn't they even say words like, I want to be part of Avarchechem, Avarchechem, Mekalel Chor. I'm going to be among those who are blessed. Which is great. Halavai, the whole Christian world should say that. I wish they all would do that. The problem is, your mainline churches, you know, your regular liberal churches, is too much for them to swallow. And, you know, they're... they're they, they're, they're in a very uncomfortable theological position because, on the one hand, 
Yaakov got the bracha. Notice the Old Testament is all about the Jews and all these, and Yashka himself was Jewish. On the other hand, it really, you know, chokes in their throat to acknowledge this. And therefore, they're, they're still, you know, these are, the, these are the ones who are the critics of Israel. You get it? These are the ones who are you know, always causing their trouble for the Israelis, the mainline churches. But the others, they say, listen, it happened. I don't know why. God obviously wanted it to happen, right? They know the story. You know what I'm saying? The Mike Huckabees of the world and people like that, they know the story of, of, of Yaakov and Esau. And they obviously read it the way the Chumash wrote it, which is it was meant to be. And so I come from Esau, but you know, okay, they got the bracha. If you got the bracha, I want to support the one who has the bracha because of Right? So that's talk of the way history has developed. Now let's compare that with Yishmol. What relation? So whereas Yaakov and Esau, being twins, had a very connected relationship, very problematic, no question about that. Very connected relationship. And we're really close with each other even in times of enmity, and the end is that they hug and kiss each other a few parshas away later on, you know. Forget that Chazal, he tried to bite him, you know. The shot is if they kiss and hug, even though Esau ends up going his way, and, you know, Yaakov goes his way, that's true. But, you know, when Esau embraces Yaakov, and he says, oh, he, Eshli Rav, basically what he's saying but later is, all right, you stole the bracha, all the rest of it, but I've done well also, so I don't care. In other words, you got, in a Hanami, you got 32 million, I got 16 million, but I turned that 16 million into 1.6 billion, so I'm fine. You get it? I'm fine. Yishmael has no relationship with the Yitzhak. Look in the Chumash. They have no relationship. There are Chazals that say they try to shoot an arrow at him and all the rest of it, but look in the text, and even that, but look in the text of the Chumash. What do what do um, uh, uh, Yitzhak and Shmuel have to do? I think they just get together to bury a father. Isn't that right? They get together to bury a father. Isn't that at the end of um, um, last week's Parsha? When else did Yitzhak and Shmuel get together? Not in Lech Lech Navi, not that I remember. They get together, bury the father. So notice they acknowledge a common ancestry. But that's it. And burying the father. Okay, burying the father. Which is a very uh, interesting point. We both agree we came from from there. You know, now, you know, Rashi says that, you know, Yishmol did a tshuva and all the rest of it. But, you know, we don't see any of that. Instead, there's a distance. And this is reflected, remarkably in my mind, by the very different attitudes of today, of Edom versus Ishmael, Legabi B'nai Yisrael, their rights to Eretz Yisrael, and the Torah in general. The Edom, the Christians, say, we do believe in the Old Testament, we just also add to it the New Testament, so we have our spin on it. But they do acknowledge, the real Christian acknowledges, the historicity of stories in Genesis. The historicity, excuse me, of the stories in the Chumash and the Tanakh. And that Eretz Israel was given by God to the Jews and all the rest of it. Including the conquest by, uh, of the Canaanites by Joshua and all the rest of it. That this was divinely mandated. They acknowledge this. 
obviously they put their own spin on it. And we've had roller coaster relationship over the course of Jewish history with Aso. But if you follow the history of Aso, took many centuries. Eventually, about 200 years ago, they came under a variety of circumstances to the idea of religious freedom, that the Jews can have equal rights among them, you know, uh, and so forth. I'll say it again. The Christian world, the European world, evolved, took a long time, evolved to such a point that about 200 years ago, they came with the idea of the modern state that has equal citizenship, civil rights for all, including the, uh, the Bnei Yaakov, not only for the Bnei Edom, okay? Now let's contrast that. Yishmael has never done that. Yishmael, Islam, in other words, does not believe in the Old Testament. They say that whereas there was an Old Testament, in other words, that God did give the, Jew, the Jews a Torah long ago, the Jews rewrote it and corrupted it in such a way that it's completely unreliable. And therefore, you can't believe any of the stories you find in the Chumash unless they happen to be verified in the Quran. There happen to be a bunch of stories from the Chumash and from the Chazal, by the way, interestingly, in the Quran. So, okay, if it's in the Quran, it's a different story. That's the only reliable one. Meaning they they have no, they acknowledge no legitimacy for um, Klai Yisrael, for the Bnei Yaakov. Uh, they reinterpret Alpha Yitzhak Yaakov as Muslims. I'm very serious about this, right? Moshe Rabbeinu as Muslims. Yes, they, they do venerate them. They do. They respect them highly. But not as Jews, as 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 uh, Muslims in, in their way. And that means it's a complete non-acknowledgement of anything special about Yaakov. You understand? That there could arise the predominant attitude. It's not the only attitude, but the predominant attitude in Islam which is the Jews have no shaykhs Eretz Yisrael, they have no rights to Eretz Yisrael, they have no nothing with Eretz Yisrael, nothing. Right? They know that the Jews have always claimed that, but big deal, they're liars, because according to the Quran, the Jews have always been liars. I repeat, if you find the story of Yaakov and Esau, or Moshe and Paro, or something like that in the Quran, that's a different story because it's in there, but not because it's in the Chumash. So they kind of reject the entire basis of the you know, Chumash stories, and, of course, they changed them for their purposes. So, obviously, if there was Yishmael versus Yitzchak, you understand that the Akeda is going to be with Yishmael and all the rest of it. And the relationship they have is indeed the kind of hostile relationship they have among the Bnei HaPilakshim. That is to say that there's a guy with different wives, and this is a child from one wife, and that's a child from another wife. And they are connected only to the degree that it causes enmity between them but they're, from day one, they're going to be, um, uh, what's the right word, competitors. In a different way than the two twins of Yaakov and Esau. They're going to be competitors for the uh, for the uh, legacy of the father. Believe me, there must have been some scene when you had Yitzhak and Yishmael bearing Avram. Because I'm sure Yitzhak said, listen, it was my father. But Yishmael said, well, I'm older than you. It was my father. I want to bury my way. And Yitzhak said, I want to bury him, you know, my way. And I don't know what, how it worked out. I don't know. But this is how it developed, as we know. And you therefore have what you would say is a troubled relationship from day one. So it turns out that Avram Avinu was on the ball 
when he said for for decades and decades he didn't want to get married. In the end, he married Hagar because because Sarah urged it. I don't think you know Sarah said she did it because she thought this would lead to her having a child. That is not what happened. Meaning, meaning she didn't have a child because of Hagar. She had a child for a different, you know, because Hashem has his reasons for it. But, well, you know, it could be, it said by, you know, that, that Hagar, you know, threw it in her face and, you know, the, and the poison relationship from day one. All I'm saying is that you see in the stories themselves of these two competing brother relationships, distinctive uh, features between A and B, between the Yitzhak and Shmuel relationship on the one hand, which is a relationship with, with no uh, nearness or anything like that, and the Yaakov and Esau one, which is a near relationship, which was troubled. But in the end, there is a hugging and kiss, there is, there is, there is a, a coming together in Pasha Vayishlach. There is no coming together, hugging and kissing or anything like that between Yitzhak and Shmuel. And here we are today, in the year Tavshin Pei in 2023, and we talk of find ourselves, you know, fighting a war against Yishmael, who really displayed para Adam, back on Simchat Torah, really displayed para Adam, and would do so in a second, if they could, versus Edom, which is having this funny kind of relationship. And I'll say it again, you see a lot of people marching, but that's mainly because of the large Muslim population in those countries. That's what I'm, I, I see that clearly. The elites who run the societies, and in those countries in Europe that don't have Muslim population there, they're very distinctly on the side of Israel. It was interesting to me to see that the Czech government said they want to quit the United Nations because they're so disgusted by the fact that they won't condemn the Hamas and only condemn Israel. Like the Czech said, it's garnished. And when did the Czechs become such sadigim? Well, there's a whole interesting relationship between the Czechs and the Jews, especially in the 20th century. But I've gone a little bit too over my time. But I'm simply pointing out that the Parsha Shua, the Parsha Shua. And uh, we see, if you wonder uh, the historicity stories in the Bible, you see them playing out in various ways. If you know how to find them, that's my always my always opinion, if you know how to find how the Parsha of the Week is talking to us in terms of current events, you find every year we come to this, it's talking to us in remarkable ways. Unfortunately, today has to do with violence and war and massacre and all the rest of it, but the 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 uh, fact that the Parsha is speaking to us is irrefutable, in my opinion. Anyway, I just wanted to say those words. I want to thank again the Radomskis and uh, the Neshama should have an Aliyah, the Grandfather's Neshama, and as they say, we should all see the hostages come back safe and sound, and we should all see Tahal prevail, and uh, and they should have no uh, losses or anything like this. Halavai, and uh, I wish the Radomskis, everyone else over there, that you know they shall be safe and uh, have all the uh, good mazel that Kalal uh, Yisrael Medinat Yisrael needs right now. Have a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, 
please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.